This is one of the center's new series, Lore Civil Society Perspectives on the Emerging Digital World. Each discussion will be a call to action for civil society organizations to take a more active role in shaping our digital future. My name is Barbara Iverson. I teach interpersonal skills and intercultural management at Code University of Applied Sciences here in Berlin. And I will be your moderator for tonight's discussion. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Digital Gender Gap brought to you by the International Civil Society Center. Let's talk about this. Civil society organizations around the world are committed to the idea and principles of social and gender justice. Every person should have equal opportunities and the freedom to lead the life they want, regardless of their biological gender and social background. Okay, we know from history though, that even in the analog world, Reality doesn't often match with these ideals. So today, we are taking a look at the digital gender divide. Are we getting closer to digital gender equality? Are we doing enough to transform gender norms? Today, we are so pleased to have three insightful panelists with us. Geraldine DeBastion is talking to us from here in Berlin, where she's based. Geraldine, would you please share with us about who you are and what you do? I would be most happy to. Thank you very much for having me as part of this debate. I'm also already looking forward to the next debate because I actually work a lot on data governance issues. So I'm Geraldine, as you said, Bob, I'm based in Berlin. I have been working on the intersection of digital technologies and human rights for over 15 years now. I run a company called Connectif, which is also based in Berlin and advises mostly public sector organizations on topics around digital transformation. And I also am founder of an NGO called the Global Innovation Gathering. And that is a network of different innovators and innovation spaces from across the world. So we have over 150 members in 40 countries trying to support local communities with tech and especially trying to find ways to create local adapted innovation that is meaningful for local development issues. So I'd be happy to talk about our work in our NGO later as we go along. I also get to host and speak at different events and curate them as well, like Republica here in Germany, in case you're familiar with that sometimes. So that's me, and I'm thrilled to be part of this round. I would like to begin just by opening the field a little bit and sharing with you a couple of statistics about how bad the situation actually is and how much work we have ahead of us. So I'm going to focus this a little bit on Europe and, and Germany, but very much looking forward to taking this into a global debate. So the EU and the EU Commission is actually trying to put a lot of resources together to follow how the gender gap is developing within Europe. And one of those resources is the Digital Economy Society Index and the Women and Digital Scoreboard that they develop, where you can go and check a lot of these statistics that I'm going to mention out now. And according to the Commission's 2020 Women and Digital Scoreboard, like I said, we have a lot of work to do. Women are still a lot less likely to have specialized digital skills and work in the ICT field compared to men, as only 18% of ICT specialists in the EU are women. The skill gap is narrowing slightly. It narrowed slightly from 10.5% in 2015 to 7.7% in 2019. So there are women developing different kinds of digital skills. However, when it comes to turning that into 
positions and management, that is a whole other ballgame. Generally speaking, within Europe, women from Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and the Netherlands are more likely to partake in the digital economy and those countries sort of rank on top, whereas Bulgaria, Romania, Greece, and Italy kind of rank on the bottom for involving women in employment uh, in the ICT sector. And there's some quite alarmist statistics as well. So there was a study conducted two years ago by the EU Commission on women in the digital age. And that actually found that uh, not only are women four times less likely to take up ICT-related studies than men, but actually found a decrease of women taking up ICT-related higher education practices compared to the last benchmark study they did about 10 years ago from now. And although female-owned startups are way more likely to be successful, there also seems to be a decrease in participation, leadership, and investment from females in this sector. And of course, that's quite alarming. A study by an IT job platform called Honeypot says this is even worse in Germany, by the way, with only 16.6% of women and in any kind of leadership positions and, and this sort of 18% on the European level taken down two notches even on the German level and Germany ranking relatively low in a place of uh, 20 out of 41 evaluated countries. The same study found that there's a massive pay gap, of course, women suffer from having way lower salaries in this field, even if they are in management positions, 25% less, in fact, so a quarter of less, which is a significant pay gap, I think. And we can also see this is true on a sort of large, more global scale. When we look at the richest women in the ICT field and we pinpoint the sort of three leading females in that field, their wealth is minuscule compared to the richest men leading in the field, which I'm not going to name by name because you know them all, but it's really a very stark comparison at that level as well. And we find a similar picture even in the US. We can see that IT experts working at Apple are still only at 23%. At Google, it's only 20%. And Facebook and Amazon each at only about 19%. Whereas the comparison of women, general employment, USA is nearly at parity with 43%. So we can really see that there's no adequate female representation in any of these management jobs, being at the big tech sectors, or when we look at Europe in our SME-led ICT field. So those are the statistics I wanted just to share with you to sort of lay out the general stark gaps that we have, and um, just raise a couple of points of personal experience before passing it on to my fellow panelists. So I would be very happy to share with you also the work of my organizations a bit more in the course of this discussion. Of course, I think it's very important that with the organizations we build ourselves, we lead by example. This goes, of course, should be a natural thing without saying. And the organizations that I get to run, I'm very proud to employ a majority of women, people from different backgrounds, also really trying to look at intersectional feminist issues here, not just looking at the issue of feminism alone, but also connecting the issues about feminism and race, looking at who do we employ and who do we try to support through the own structures that we create. Now, I think this is extremely important, as I said, to lead by example. I also think it's really important to try to create cross-sectoral allies and alliances. The ICT field is stark, but for instance, one sector where this is even starker is the energy sector, with only about 12% of women in leadership positions, whereas women 
take the bulk of the work when it is providing energy to their families, oftentimes in different global contexts. So there again, we have a very lopsided field. So trying to create allies with people, for instance, women working on women in the energy sector, I think is a very important way to go. There is some hope also, silver linings. In Germany, for instance, we are finally going to introduce a law to try to fix some of these gaps and bring more women into management positions. This law has not yet come into effect, but we can already see an increase in women in the respective management positions after this law was announced, which I think is a very positive development. And I think what's also something that we can hopefully pick up on the debate, there are so many civil society organizations and initiatives and grassroots initiatives trying to fix this. And since my work is um, sometimes focused on Berlin and Germany, but also sometimes focused very much on the global south through the NGO, I do, I just wanted to name three examples that all happen to be African examples where organizations are really trying to build talent and trying to fix these gaps from an educational perspective. So for instance, coding schools like Akira Chicks, which is founded and based in Kenya, that specifically tries to create learning opportunities for girls and women from backgrounds that might not have natural access to ICTs, as for instance, also the coding school We Are Bits does, which is specifically designed to have people build up their tech talent and qualify for tech jobs or top jobs in the ICT sector that live in impoverished areas or come from low educational backgrounds. And also other initiatives such as Bridge the Gap, which is a coding school initiative at Kumasi Hive in Ghana, specifically also, again, addressed to women and girls, not just in creating software coding skills, but also in coming up with their own IoT devices. So there are a lot of really exciting initiatives like that. And I think we need to see how we can all work towards strengthening those in order to close these gaps. Sorry, I've talked a bit too long. Bob just looked at the watch. I'll pass it over now. Oh, you're good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Geraldine. Thanks for sharing about who you are and what you've been doing and some of the, the issues that we see, but also the bright spots. So um, Coco Evi Susuvi is speaking to us from Paris. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm absolutely thrilled to be um, sharing experiences with you. So I've been working in um, development and humanitarian assistance since 2005 and I'm a digital financial inclusion specialist. It means I focus on financial access for the end bank and a lot of time it involves connecting them with uh, digital financial services, um, mobile money, using mobile phones, prepaid cards, um, these type of solutions so that they can receive financial assistance to, to support them. Now, I've been working within the UN system a lot and NGOs and, and the World Bank and, and my experience, um, my work, I've been lucky, has taken me to about 30 countries. The first thing I want to talk about is access. How do we define access? You know, um, giving access, internet access to people uh, across the globe, is it really about just setting up cell towers? An interesting website to look at is International Telecommunication Union that gives um, a yearly report on the, uh, measuring digital development. And right now, about 93% of the world is within reach of a cell tower and can access the internet, but only 53% um, does so, uses the internet on a daily basis. You see, only 63% of the population in sub-Saharan Africa has access to the internet, to electricity. 
And mobile phones are the primary uh, device people use to access the internet now. It's no longer personal computers. So having internet access is also conditioned to having electricity to charge mobile phones. And then another corollary to that, having access to a mobile phone is conditioned to having national identification so that you can register for a SIM card. The gap in um, access to identification is very, very large between men and women, especially in countries in sub-Saharan Africa where registering birth, especially in remote rural villages, remains a challenge. About 1.7 billion women in the world don't have access to a mobile phone. A survey also conducted by the USAID in their digital strategy shows that 68 women actually report feeling safer having a mobile phone. So you see, in terms of access, we still have uh, a major gap to fill. The next point I want to bring to you is adoption. How do we bring people to actually use uh, the internet, use mobile devices, you know, get them along with the technology? I mean, trust is a, is a major issue. How do we make, uh, do you create a safe environment for uptake of these services? How do we communicate? With, uh, with consumers. Issues of trust are particularly important, and Maya will touch upon that in our presentations. Issues relating to data privacy, digital authoritarianism, misinformation, hate speech, and all that. But here, we can maybe just focus on capacity, on skills, literacy. Still a large section of the world has difficulty communicating in the main international languages, the English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, which is a language where most consumer communication is carried out uh, on your mobile phone, for example, if you are to receive a text message from your provider, uh, it will be in a language that may not be your vernacular language if you live in sub-Saharan Africa or in any remote locations like this. We also know that half of the world population lacks basic skills like you know, copying and pasting a file or even sending an email with an attachment. So the question of skills remains a major obstacle to driving adoption of technology. Application. Again, are we looking at democratizing uh, access so that we have more uh, female entrepreneurs? Is that how we bridge the gender gap? Or do we really look at uh, the last mile and, and how having access to mobile-enabled financial services can help uh, develop micro-trade? We've seen the success of solutions like M-Pesa that have been built on remittances, domestic remittances, peer-to-peer -peer transfers, and how these have been shifted into enabling local trade at the micro level, but also lifting people out of poverty. We have applications such as pay-as-you-go for energy purposes, for solar. We have a lot of prepaid systems now that can be paid using mobile phones. Voice messaging is also on the increase where we can have a lot of WhatsApp voicemails, for example, not to mention WhatsApp as a, as a provider, but uh, voice messaging has been very successful in negotiating uh, prices because, again, of the literacy issue. And there's also application experimentations with using WhatsApp banking where voice commands can actually trigger banking operations. The question of the application of what uh, use cases, how do we uh, make this technology available, for what purposes do we make this technology available is very important so that we make sure that we don't exclude anybody. Now, reaching the last mile, this is what it looks like to me. It's about making sure that nobody is left on the side curb. Is it that it's about 
making sure that an old grandmother at the top of a hill in Kenya or in Bangladesh can have safe access to a mobile phone so that she can communicate, she can trade, she can be connected to the world. Bridging the, the digital gap is really about inclusion, and I think it's a beautiful picture. I'll leave you here, and maybe we'll give you more example when we get to the Q&A. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you so much. The last of our three panelists to share is Maya Kralic. She is also based in Berlin, but she's currently in Slovenia. Hey, Maya. Tell us about yourself, what you're doing, what you're working on. Well, first of all, I'm very excited to be here with you today. I work as a web developer for Association for Progressive Communications, where I build feminist internet. I'm also an advisor on diversity and inclusion at LNF Foundation, and I'm part of feminist and LGBTIQ communities for the last 20 plus years. And lately I started to explore also live coding of music and visuals, uh, which I think is also part of the feminist internet. And today I was invited here to talk about feminist principles of the internet, but I will start with a statement that internet is not a safe space, especially not for women, for non-binary and for LGBTIQ people. There is lots of harassment, censorship, and our online spaces are constantly attacked. I think we must remind ourselves that the internet is run from the most privileged spaces in the world and that the focus of the biggest platforms is how to earn money for their founders and shareholders and not how to build a just and sustainable world. So in this environment comes the feminist internet. And what is the vision of feminist internet? Well, feminist internet works towards empowering more women and queers to fully enjoy our rights, engage in pleasure, play, and dismantle patriarchy. Feminist internet is internet that belongs to each and every one of us. And feminist principles of the internet, which we are also talking about today, come from us, from community. Community of activists fighting for sexual rights, for women's rights, for internet rights, and against gender-based violence gathered in 2014 and 15 in two Imagine Feminist Internet meetings. And these were held in Malaysia, and approximately 90 activists came, came together and started to imagine and discuss how internet could and should look like. And they came up with 17 principles, or we could call them statements. And they organized them in five clusters named access, movements, uh, economy, expression, and embodiment. And together, the principles aim to provide a framework, uh, which is a very political framework, a framework with which we can articulate and explore issues related to technology. These principles are therefore connecting us because they, they open up the space for discussion within our feminist movements. And these principles are published also online on the feministinternet.org and anyone can expand them and contribute uh, resources or translating them. So let's review just a few clusters because otherwise I could spend the whole hour talking about them. So uh, I'll keep this a bit short. The first one, uh, access, is particularly important. Um, it points out that more women and queers need to have access to the internet. There is still a gender gap in device ownership and in internet access. A recent Mozilla Internet Health Report says that worldwide, men are 21% more likely to be online than women. 
which is a huge gap, I would say. There are internet shutdowns going on all the time. Just look at the Myanmar and Uganda examples in the recent days. Access is also about uh, the access to information. Withholding information from the public is in the interest of some governments. Uh, we have witnessed government censorship of LGBTIQ sites, attacks on internet sites hosting abortion information. And as a result of this actions, information on sexual and reproductive health, sexual education, and LGBTIQ rights is not easily available. Women, as well as people of diverse sexualities and gender expressions, are more often targets of online violence, which might result in self-censorship and also withdrawal from the platforms. Access is also about usage. Uh, women and queer persons have the right to code, to design, to adapt and use technology as a platform for creativity and expression, as well as to challenge the cultures of sexism and discrimination uh, in all online spaces. The second cluster um, I wanted to point out is the economy cluster. Cluster is focused against corporate control uh, of the internet in general, and internet needs, uh, because internet needs to be based on freedom, on sharing, on collaboration. As feminists, we promote open source software usage in our movements and in activist spaces, as well as contribute to the development of open source programs. For those who might not be familiar with open source, open source code is code that is freely available. It is there that you can review it, you can change it, you can run it, you can share it. So it offers many more freedoms than proprietary uh, software. From feminist point of view, it is important to support independent platforms because they empower us. And I'm sure that many of you are using menstrual apps, but do you really know where exactly the data you enter goes or how is it used? Feminist approach in this case would be that the data is yours on your phone, that you can export it or do whatever you want with it and that it doesn't reside on some cloud under control of somebody else. And the last embodiment cluster uh, looks at our diverse experiences and relationships as human beings embodying multiple identities and realities in this disembodied online space. Uh, here we focus on consent, on privacy, on memory, on anonymity and gender-based violence. Consent principle says that women's agency lies in our ability to make informed decisions on what aspects of, of our public or private lives are shared online. I'm sure that uh, you have already experienced that some information about you or maybe photos or videos were shared online without your approval and that your right to privacy was disregarded. Another important principle uh, talks about anonymity. Anonymity has always supported women and queers in telling our stories and actually anonymity saves lives in some cases. Uh, the last principle in embodiment cluster addresses also uh, online gender-based violence. Frequent targets of gender-based violence are women's rights activists, LGBTIQ activists, trans people, female journalists. They're facing online harassment, cyberstalking, invasion of privacy, blackmail, threats. In general, feminist internet needs everybody to be able to participate in public life online without fear of violence, without intimidation, silencing, or censorship. This was a short recap of feminist principles of the internet, but we can go into details later.
Maya, thank you so much for that introduction. I've got a few things that I made notes about. One of them is I heard from several of you, or at least two of you, about the question of access and wanted to hear from you how you see that, like Coco coming from her experience in African countries and Maya with the feminist internet, like how do you see access coming together from both of these worlds that you're working in? I can just begin with some considerations regarding to um, the obstacles. You know, I've, I've mentioned the lack of identification. It is something that prevents people from accessing the internet, even though the infrastructure is there. So we, the equipment is one thing, the actual technology, and then making sure that we bring people closer to the technology is a major issue. So I think the infrastructure is easily dealt with, but things like um, looking at it from sort of an ecosystem perspective, um, cultural norms are also something that are very important in preventing women uh, from accessing mobile phones, for example. You know, in many patriarchal societies, it's, uh, it's not well regarded, it's not well seen if a woman has a, a mobile phone, especially if she's a married woman and these type of elements. So the issue of access is very, very broad and so many things come into play. And these are really elements that tend to be neglected and the focus is too much on the infrastructure as we've seen. So maybe I'll just say that, and because I know that Maya has a lot more to contribute on this issue, but the question of our access is utmost importance, and it's not just about having uh, the technology readily available. Yeah, I also think it's the basics, right? If we don't have access like a device or electricity charge device, or then to have the connection to the internet, or maybe we are not able to pay for data, maybe data is super expensive. Those are all obstacles that prevent us from using the internet. And then when we are connected, okay, what can we do? How can we engage? Can we build maybe something? So there's a, also a notion of knowledge. We have to know how to do these things. And it's like steps, you know, and we are building from one to another. And maybe the access at first is just like the issue of money, you know, that we can build infrastructure, but it's so much more actually. And, you know, I, I really wish that we could build more stuff, that we could have more fun on the internet, that we could just explore stuff and not be in this world where we can only consume what others prepared for us, that we can also create the internet we want. Yeah, great word. Geraldine, what kind of issues of access do you see in the work that you do? I mean, I work in higher education and it's a tech university and we also have numbers around 20, 22% per class of women students or female identifying students. Um, and I'm wondering, what is the hope for the next generation? Are younger girls getting interested in these topics? Is that the way? What's, what's our way forward? I think. Obviously, there's not one recipe that's going to solve all this. Uh, it's going to take a lot of work in different aspects. I think education, as always, of course, is key. But I also think that, like I said, there's so many great things happening on a grassroots level. The NGO that Maya is representing is one of those, trying to create different ways of access and trying to shape those markets also that Coco was speaking about. I mentioned some of those coding schools that address specifically building capacity of girls and young women. But I think all this needs to be met also with better 
structures on a economic, macroeconomic and on political levels if this is going to have an effect. So these grassroots initiatives need to be met by policy initiatives and us speaking out on different levels in order for this to have effect. And responsibilities, you know, whose responsibility is that if your government is unwilling to create the right structures or whose responsibility is it if the platforms that we're speaking on like the um, social media platforms that Maya was referencing are not creating safe spaces that we need for equal representation and participation. We need, of course, to hold these authorities and systems of power accountable. And that's why I think we need these allies and systems of creating better allies between us that I was speaking about earlier as well. So it's a mix of both. I think Maya completely wholeheartedly we need to educate then in order to build our own platforms and platforms that work under the democratic and human rights frameworks that we want them to and not necessarily the platforms that we're using now that are exported that are male dominated capitalistically dominated and export a whole different value set perhaps than the one that we stand for at the same time we need to hold those platforms and our governments accountable and of course that feels like fighting against windmills a lot of the time but um, that's that's part of the journey we're on i think Thank you so much for that. That brings me to another question that could be related, but what are those alliances that we need to start building or deepen so that we can start closing this gap? Thinking not only about the situation we're in, but um, what needs to happen to keep making this gap smaller and smaller? I think it's a whole mix of different recipes. I think we need to make sure that women have a seat at the table everywhere, always. There's great initiatives like No Woman, No Panel. And we need to see more of that, of course. We need to make sure that it's not like, I'm often the quota woman in a twofold way. So I get then to be the quota woman on a panel because I'm a woman and because I represent a civil society organization. It's like, oh, we check two boxes with one. Now, of course, that's just not good enough anymore. And we need to fight for this kind of representation and to make sure that that's the case in the building of every startup team as it is putting together any round table of politicians. So I'll make that maybe as a first point and pass it on. I mean, yes, absolutely. And, you know, we see, uh, as uh, Geraldine has explained, that there's a lack of representations of women in tech. And I think if we had more women in tech, we will see more relevant application of technology, developing use cases that are more relevant to women and to their specific uh, circumstances. A lot of women are housebound. Um, they're not able to leave them, to leave a house to uh, to comply with some of the regulatory requirements. So for example, you know, to own a SIM card, you need to present a photocopy of your ID card. And you see if, you know, if, if, if this, these uh, solutions were uh, kind of uh, able to be done remotely, you know, opening a bank account remotely, sending a picture, scanning some things, you know, these are little things, little steps, but makes it easier. But uh, again, these solutions are better thought about and designed when, when you have women in the decision-making um, mix as well. Yeah, I would also like to see a lot of connection between us because I can see a lot of initiatives, a lot of collectives, a lot of organizations working in these fields, but we are not the best connected, I would say, still. But, you know, we, we meet a lot, but still there is lack, it seems, of, of connection. And the other uh, thing that I was thinking about is we have to get financed. We need money. And there are lots of funds. Uh, I see that EU is giving a lot of money for digital in the next years. I work for NLNet, who is also giving out grants. And I can see there are not so many women applying. 
you know when when you go and do statistics no it's it's very bad statistics actually maybe i don't know five ten percent if i'm optimistic so we need to get uh women i don't know more ambitious in some some way get out there get some money and do our projects also we need to provide some way of living right it's not only about grants that are for civic society organizations out there you know that we can fight on on this level on maybe on governance level or on the more political side but also on building stuff this is such a major issue funding is such a huge issue in the whole digital rights scene so any organization working at the intersection of digitization and human rights is going to have a severe problem to find any core funding unless they're funded by the Open Society Foundation, maybe. And especially, this is true in other regions of the world, it's very much true in Europe because we lack any kind of state funding mechanisms outside of perhaps large funding schemes like Horizon 2020, which are very difficult to apply to by small, for smaller NGOs. And something like the Open Tech Fund, which is very threatened under Trump, we'll see how that will develop now in the US, doesn't exist in Europe also is lacking in other regions of the world. And something like that specifically to fund women in digital rights, especially <laughs> does not really exist. So I think that's such an important point that you just raised Maya and something where we really need to see more happening if we wanna see anything change in the field is more funding available for civil society organizations working on these topics and more funding also to create these intersectional alliances. Yeah, thank you for that. And we're going to switch gears slightly and go to the questions so that we have time to tackle all of those. I have a million questions that I could ask all of you, but we'll save that for if we have some time after we handle these questions from our audience. So the first one suggests to Maya and Coco, who should be responsible for bridging the digital gap towards people that are not yet included in the digital life if their own government does not feel responsible? I mean, it is a great question. You know, the question of accountability for all this is primordial. It's just really key. Uh, it's a collective effort, you know, it's, it's, it really comes down to all of us. So first of all, cost is a major issue. Sub-Saharan Africa has the highest costs um, in terms of access of the internet, access to the internet, you know, the cost of handset is very high, you know, so governments have policies in terms of taxation, in terms of importation of devices and all these kind of things that have a, a consequence on access. There is also a number of things that can be done in terms of changing the cultural norms as well, making it much more readily acceptable that everybody has a phone irrespective of, of their gender. And also the market you know, plays a role. Uh, the private sector is the first provider of the infrastructures and the actual technology, the devices and all that. Women are a market, so we need to make sure that their products are designed for their uses as well. Years ago, when M-Pesa first started, this is a mobile money, a solution that allows you to send uh, money for your mobile phone. When it was first introduced, people used it to make domestic remittances. So the, the, the way it was marketed was you live in the city and you want to send money to, to a relative in, in the countryside. Now, when some women have found access to these tools, they've been able to use it for microtrade. I know the example of a, of a woman who used to sell fish in Uganda on the borders of uh, Lake Victoria. And one day when the, when the fish did not come through on that side of the lake, she was able to make a phone call to another women female trader in Kenya on the other side of the lake. And that lady put the fish on the bus for her and she was able to pay via M-Pesa, make a mobile transfer, basically a remittance to her. 
and the fish arrive. Now with the technology of the internet, you can even like on Google map actually trace the fish on the bus to, to know when it arrives and make sure that it remains cool the whole time. So you see, I think the market can really work for us women as well, including on the last mile so that micro trade or anything that benefits the livelihoods of the most excluded can be improved. Yeah, I totally agree with Coco that we are all in this together, right? And we all need to, to make effort to bridge the digital gap. But yesterday when I was researching di uh, digital gaps or gaps, gender gaps in, uh, in general, uh, and I saw that in 100 years, maybe there won't be a gap anymore. And I said like, okay, 100 years, it's kind of a long time to wait. <laughs> maybe it, it would be better to, you know, to have at least some bubbles where there is less gap <laughs> before that. But yeah, I think we also need to ask ourselves, okay, what can we do to, to bridge the gap? What can our organizations do to bridge the gap? What can we do as individuals in the society or in the local environment also? To bridge the gap and work on all these levels and you know there will be some effect i'm sure thanks yeah i love hearing that story about the woman with the phone call across victoria to get the fish i think it's fantastic all right another question uh this one is also for coco what can one do for the last mile when women have no phones or internet and lives that are subordinated to the men or their husbands, meaning that the men in the household have a phone, but the women do not. Yes, I mean, uh, this is again, we've got such fantastic questions. Thank you so much to everybody who's posting questions. This is exactly why Geraldine, Maya and I are here to be really stimulating this conversation. This is what we do in the humanitarian and development world. We really relentlessly try to make sure that these issues remain are top of mind that we try to address them through different ways you know so for example in a community where we want to provide services and women don't have phone access we do a lot of sensitization to begin with we gather the community we explain the purposes you know the importance of creating that access how safer it makes the situation the environment for women like i was saying earlier usa usa ideas produced some publication that helped tell us that women feel safer having a mobile phone. So this is, this is not, we're not talking about lots of luxury items. We're talking about personal safety. We're talking about making sure they're not isolated. We're making sure that they, they can contribute. So in a very concrete way, for example, in a given community, and, and international organizations can, uh, using their own proxy, get access to a number of SIM cards, to a number of phones via donations or phones that they can buy themselves and distribute them in the community. And so the phone is registered in the name of the organization. And over time, uh, women can transfer that in their own name when they get access to identification. So we also lobby so that um, the, the range of documentation that can be accepted for these regulatory constraints are also kind of broadened. So for example, using birth certificates, if you don't have a, a valid ID, using voters cards. In Togo, just during the COVID response, Voter ID was accepted. There was allowances made for that so that people could register mobile phone so that they could receive financial assistance on the mobile phone through a nationwide program that actually provided more money, an increased amount to women because they understood, the government then understood that um, the challenges to women's income is much greater because you know the, the way women spend as documented to be different, that they choose to prioritize the health of the household as opposed to their own personal needs. So they get more money to the women registered on the programs than to the men. 
and they accepted a wider range of documentation so that they could register for a mobile phone and get access to this financial aid. So there are a range of things that can be done from a regulatory perspective, but especially from a sensitization and making sure that everybody understands what really lies behind giving women access to this technology, that it just benefits the community as a whole so much better. If I may, I'd like to add an additional thought. So not so much on the topic of individual devices, but building on what Maya also said earlier, I also very much see a feminist internet be one that is building the commons, the digital commons and access points to that. So beyond individual devices, and completely in agreement to everything that Coco said, I think the idea of building common and shared infrastructures and common and shared access points can also be a powerful notion. And this could, for instance, include building community spaces that are open and accessible and also to those who might not feel it's their place to walk into a tech space. So here, for instance, we've had an interesting development, which is very slowly picking up, for instance, of building maker spaces into public libraries or building other forms of ICT workshops into public libraries. So spaces that could be also safe spaces for people to go that, like I said, don't feel that they're part of a tech community yet, but have a different way of accessing the internet there, but also maybe learning how to tinker around and play with creating their own technologies, creating their own devices. And, and I think that's something seeing here, but again, also my NGO is a network of such kind of spaces. And I think this can be an important addition to everything that Coco just mentioned. Thank you so much. Maya, there was a question about creating safe spaces on platforms if the platforms themselves are not creating them. And I think the question was in some ways who, but I would also wonder how if some of this question of access or empowerment is coming up. Yeah, I guess it's hard. If the platform is against you, it's hard to create a safe space in, inside of it, right? Maybe Facebook, we could imagine that you have a group and you just invite people you know or people that are vouched for into that group. And that's the way you, you actually provide a safe space. But otherwise, it's very hard, especially if you complain that somebody's harassing you or somebody's sending you nasty messages and just they don't exclude them. You know, they still... They're still there, maybe harassing somebody else on the platform. I know it's uh, it's a very hard question how to influence the platform so much that you know they would change. Because many times we are fed up with it. You know, we we don't want to fight with the windmills, and we want we just go to another platform and do our thing there. But again, we can be attacked, right? Because somebody can infiltrate, <laughs> somebody can, you know, again, repeat the story. I don't know. I think it's still important that we influence these big platforms because there are so many users there. Even if we make a little change to the better, it can influence many, many people. And of course, uh, next to that, also building our own platforms, other spaces that support us where we can actually have some voice and building our communities around there. I think both ways are legit. Yeah, that's great. There's two options. And it'll be fun to see how the feminist internet develops and is a safer space for a bigger variety of people with their needs. Uh, we have two more questions that we're running out of time that I want to give voice to quickly. And this first one, I think, that is, lots of focus of late is being targeted on the girl-child situation is taking shape now where we have empowered ladies and weak husbands. At the end of it, the pressure lends back on the women. 
How do we balance this? Any gender issues, you know, involve both men and women. And I think this is probably one of um, the challenges we find that men think that more powerful women will mean weaker men. But uh, there's power, enough power in the world for all of us to share. So any, any sort of discriminated group has to fight harder to make their voice heard. The pressure is on women's shoulder because they are the ones suffering from discrimination uh, when it comes to um, gender gaps. But it's a collective effort. It goes back to what we were discussing, that everybody uh, needs to roll up their sleeves and make sure that the situation changes and not just leave it to women to raise themselves out of a discriminatory situation. This is not how it works. We need to all collectively recognize that this situation is not right and we need to fix it together, hand in hand, and it'll be a beautiful journey. When I was reading uh, this uh, this line, disempowered ladies and weak husbands, I was I was thinking about what about all the gender-based violence and all the apps that are spying on uh, the spouses and how many men are installing those kind of apps on their partners' phones. And I said, like, no, no, all husbands are weak or all partners are weak. So there's still power struggle, uh, a lot of violence also. It's unfortunately very much a thing. I am experiencing it here still on a very regular level. And, and I think this is not just true to Germany that I need to explain that feminism means the equality of the genders and is not about disadvantaging one group to the advantage of another. So this baseline understanding that when we say feminism, that we talk about equity and equality is something that still needs to be drilled home. And this threat is of course something that's then threatening our whole cause. So I still have the energy to have these conversations, even though I very much understand that there are other people out there who do not. And this is also what I mean very much in terms of being allies. And you said it so beautifully just now, Coco, I, I can't phrase it better, but obviously this, this is just gonna have effect if we're all in this together as well. So yeah, the strong woman should be strengthening the husband too and vice versa and not weakening the other. It's, not about taking something away, but giving. Yes, I mean, that's beautiful. And I uh, would actually really like to end there because I think, in fact, it's incredibly uplifting to think of it that way, that we are all in this together, that it's not a zero-sum game, that empowered women doesn't lead to unempowered men. And there's plenty of things to share. When women are strengthened, the entire community is strengthened. And so this is what we can come back to and recognize that the inclusivity makes us stronger. We'll use that to wrap up the time with the three of you. And I want to thank you so very much for joining us this evening. It's been, I hope for everyone, illuminating and also inspiring not just to think about the ways that the gender gap hasn't been bridged, but also the things that are happening to bridge it and that change is happening. That gap is getting smaller. And even those days when it feels like it isn't, it in fact is, and we can all take pride and encouragement from that. Thank you so much to Geraldine, to Maya, to Coco for um, your wonderful words, for giving us a picture of what's happening with the work that you do and the world that you're in. So, and thanks to all of you who've joined us from around the world.
And so join us the first Thursday of the month is when these debates will take place. The next event is April 1st, and it is on the topic of data colonialism in Africa. And you can already register to join the event on the center's website in the digital debates section. On behalf of our wonderful three panelists and the International Civil Society Center, I'm Barbara Iverson. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time.